Hello, and welcome to Dev Tales. I'm Duncan, and with me here today is Michael. We're going to be talking about transitions. Moving from Australia to the United States, moving from Ruby to JavaScript, Java, and others, and moving jobs within Seattle. Yeah, hi everyone, I'm Michael. Uh, looking forward to talking about these topics today. Yep. And Michael used to be, he and I go way back, which in front of you is two and a half years. He's uh, <laughs> like, hey, have you, these things, they're called fat arrow functions. It's pretty cool. You don't need to write the function keyword anymore. I was like, wow, I don't know about all that. <laughs> but yeah, so Michael was on my first uh, team at uh, AWS where I was a web developer and he was a software development engineer. And uh, both of us have since moved on to other roles. But uh, it's um, been an interesting journey to see where we've both gone. But first, let's do a little bit of background. Uh, Michael, tell me how you got started in coding. Yeah, sure. So it was sort of through uh, university. So I started off, came out of high school and thought I wanted to go and work in a mine and be a mining engineer. Um, and then I also thought I might want to wear a suit. So I also did a, a business degree at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I realized pretty quickly I didn't want to go and work out of the mine and change to software engineering. And that's kind of where it got started. Uh, yeah. So a few years there and then went out into the workforce sort of shortly before I graduated. So did you just take every class with like the title engineering on it? And then there was like mine engineering that's like web engineer. <laughs> How did... Uh, how did you make that decision or is it sort of like a lot of people's in college where they're just kind of. <laughs> it's a bit of both. It's nice to put a nice narrative on it in hindsight, but in reality it was fairly random, but I think a nice thing they do with engineering degrees is in the first year you do a subject from each sort of discipline. Um, and you know, I did like a, you know, introduction to software engineering one really liked it. So that's kind of what changed my mind. That's really interesting. Cause yeah, I think obviously I don't have a CS degree. But uh, I think um, there's something interesting about that grouping of different kinds of engineering as related to disciplines. Like in the United States, the CS degree is pretty separate from you know the engineering department. Um, so in Australia, they're more integrated, or how does that work? Yeah, it's quite different because there isn't anywhere near as big a development community in Australia. Um, I think generally people who wanted to. Uh, interest in those kind of roles would try and that normally actually a lot of our software engineers I met in Australia were mechanical engineers or chemical engineers originally. Uh, there is a computer science degree, but not as many, at least when I went through university, not as many people were doing it. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's a really big deal. Cause like at least in the U S like there's a lot of debate about how appropriate the term engineer even is for people, you know, like writing software and then move towards like, you know, talk about developers and not as much about engineers. Although apparently putting the like putting engineer in your job title does cause you to get paid more. So, I mean, definitely call yourself an engineer, but deep down, you know. Yeah. That's what I like about having the degree. I guess no one can, <laughs> no one can say otherwise. So Is that you actually have the claim to yeah. engineering across the board. So does that cover like civic engineering or uh, so you get like a Bachelor of Engineering, you have a major, um, but as part of my course, I didn't do any civil engineering, but you do do a similar, like you do all the engineering math subjects, uh, you do a lot of like the sort of common like project management subjects, those kind of things. Hmm. So 
I'm still just, I'm still trying to picture like that intro. You have all these engineers, mm. and just in my head, like half of you are dressed up like mine foreman, and half of you are wearing like construction hats, and a few people are wearing like hoodies. Mm. Uh, was did people did, did most people know what kind of engineering they wanted to do when they got started, or like really it was very open ended? So at the time, uh, it was really very simple. Like the biggest, the best paying jobs in Australia were mining engineer jobs. So <laughs> the sort of people doing mining engineering weren't necessarily people wearing uh, hard hats or, <laughs> or anything like that. Um, so, but yeah, I think, I mean, I think no one knows when they come out of high school what they want to do. Um, so it was sort of engineering is a very popular discipline to start with because you do have all those choices in major. Yeah, that's a really, like, it's like, yeah, of course no one knows what they want to do, but then you're supposed to just pick random classes your first year and yeah. pretend the other three years. But it's, I think it's definitely a, a different approach. Um, do you know, like when you were working as a software developer in Australia, do you feel like there was, in terms of like professional associations, was there more of an association with other kinds of engineers or? Uh, not really. Not really. Okay. No, they really are quite different. And that was challenging yeah. in university because, and it's hilarious to look back in hindsight, but I was like, how am I actually going to get a job in this? Like, you know, all my friends are doing mining engineering. They go into the graduate program with the big uh, companies. You know, there's a real set path where, because Australia doesn't have that software development community as much, there wasn't that clear path. Um, but then obviously in the US, there's this massive job market for developers and software engineers. So then you emerged from uh, university with your degree in engineering. And then what did you do? What was your, what was your initial job search like? What was sort of like week one of the job search? Sure. So at the time I was working at kind of like a startup. It wasn't purely software based, but it was a startup that did electricity billing. And I was like the sole developer there. So I'd already had a bit of experience developing and in hindsight, quite a lot of experience actually, because when you're the only person you have to do a lot of stuff, <laughs> deployments, maintenance, operations, all those kind of things. So yeah, what I sort of did is um, looked at my options at the time. I'd sort of interviewed for a few graduate programs. So I had some options open there. So I decided to take three months and go over to the US um, and look around for work there as well because I knew the market was much bigger over in the US. And so about how much time were you, about how much time did you spend as that like solo developer at a startup? Uh, it was two years all up, I think. Um, yeah. So it was sort of because I was still studying. I was only working there part-time, but yeah, it was two years. That's, I think that used to be a more common experience of being mm. like, the person who writes the deployment scripts and plugs in the printers and it's just like the person who knows the only person who like really yeah. knows very much about computers in the office. Mm. Um, so that like, was was everyone else completely non-technical or do you have a few people? who? Uh, no, I had a boss who was pretty technical, um, but he was actually like the CEO of the company. So he had other things to focus on for the most part. Um, but interestingly, the, uh, Stuff I built then still seems to be working. He's been able to maintain it since. So, <laughs> so you heard check and you're like, oh, like Yeah, I've still got the Bitbucket login. So, okay, so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll every, check. Every once in a while, just to see if everything's okay. Yeah. yeah. I yeah, think that's, that's a common thing when you move projects and stuff. You wonder, like, are people actually going to keep doing the things I, <laughs> I intended? So, oh, oh yeah. sure. Yeah. The, and then, some, although sometimes it can be heartbreaking, right? Like, yeah. months, uh, in like, architecting a certain way. And like the first three commits after you leave, it's like, what have you done? Like, it's all ruined now. Yeah. Side effects. I can definitely think of a project I worked on where I looked back, you know, six months later and I was still in the first page of commits, which is yeah. <laughs> always a worry. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, that like, 
I don't know, I guess you sort of do the best you can, but then also other people have different preferences and needs. Mm. And when you're building a system, you may be thinking, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to last for years. It went really mm. open-ended. And when someone's maintaining the system, they're like, I want to add exactly one more feature and then hopefully we deprecate this. Yeah. So they have a different set of trade-offs. Mm. Um, although sometimes it's, sometimes it's not just a trade-off, it's just, it's just a shortcut, right? Where somebody's just like, oh, this is going to cause operational problems later. <laughs> yeah. And again, I mean, I guess that's another trade-off as long as they're on call for it. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so you took a little, when you went to the United States to look for work, uh, did you just tell her you were going on vacation or did you tell people you were like going off to America to make your fortune? Yeah, a little bit of both. Uh, I told my work what I was doing, which was cool. Like they were uh, pretty relaxed about it. They knew that's what I planned to do. Um, but yeah, it was sort of hard to commit. You know, I, I wasn't sure what my chances of success were. So I was sort of a little bit vague about what I was doing over in America. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's always hard. You know, you don't want to, if you come back, you know, something went wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's, just, that's just a little like, um, you know, self-care tip yeah is, uh, if there's something you're doing that's really cool it'd be really great if you've got it yeah it'll be just as cool once you're sure that you've got it yes <laughs> there's really no reason to announce to everybody that you're going to do this thing and it's going to be great uh, like i can remember a couple of people who in the sort of mid-sized town i'm from gave their like I hated you all, burn it all down. I'm going to be famous. You'll see me on the TV one day. Like they gave that speech and then they like came back like six months later. <laughs> so like definitely like wait until the end of your first week at your new job before you, you know, before you make a, a you know, any announcements just in case. Yeah. I, a funny sort of story along those lines. So when I started recently at a new job, uh, a lot of the people I started with, we all had did kind of the same thing. We didn't, update our LinkedIn until we've started. And there was even, everyone had kind of the same thought in their head. What if I get there on the first day and there's been some huge mistake and, you know, (laughs) I think everyone had that fear. I guess it's like a, just a common human psychology. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for sure. And then also you may get there on your first day, you just suddenly realize like, Oh, this is not for me at all. So, you know, I thought I was going to be here for years and years and now I'm probably going to be here for like two months. So, Yeah, it definitely can be nice to have a little bit of lag time between, Mm. you know, uh, thinking, you know, wanting to get the thing in the process of getting the thing, getting and getting the thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Like that, because it can be, it can be so rough to like switch back and forth and then delete the history. (laughs) (laughs) LinkedIn doesn't have an easy way to scrub your, (laughs) people will have those emails. They're like, congratulations on the (laughs) chip. This post does not exist. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so then so you were traveling all over, I guess just the West Coast, or did you go further, further? Uh I only really interviewed on the West Coast. So started off in Los Angeles, um, went down to San Diego, then went to San Francisco for like a month, and that was a lot of interviewing. Uh and then during that period went up to Seattle to interview at Amazon. Um, and then, you know, after that I was done. So I did go over to the, uh, the East coast, but by then I was finished interviewing. So, yeah. Yeah. And so you were able to, and so with your, with your employer, right before you left, you kind of let them know that you might not be coming back or how did you. Yeah. So they knew, uh, there was a pretty good chance I wouldn't come back. Yeah. So. And they were totally cool with like leaving the job posting open for you in case. 
Yeah, I mean, they still uh, didn't hire another developer afterwards. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, sometimes if you write a system that's maintainable enough, they go, actually, we don't need anyone full time on this. Yeah. But yeah, that's so like that's a definite path. And then you didn't, did you find that employers in the United States were able to like, count your experience in Australia? Uh, no, it was kind of tricky. So because of where, like, you know, I just graduated, um, I think I would normally fit into like sort of the university graduate program for these companies where they tend to go out to the universities in the US. Um, it's kind of built around that. So it was kind of tricky because, you know, I couldn't really apply for these university graduate positions. So I ended up applying for just normal uh, entry level positions. Um, so that was kind of tricky. Um, okay. mm, I, mean, I want to dig into a little bit more sure. just because I think this is like a pretty common, like people with lots of different backgrounds, they have yeah. a situation where either prior experience doesn't seem to be as relevant or, you know, it's not as like legible, like a U.S. company goes like, well, like X number of years at Y. I've never heard of, I've never heard of that place or that company or that market. And, you know, even, even international companies, like large international companies can be like a little bit uneasy about like kinds of experience that they, you know, like doesn't fit into like, oh, I spent three years at Microsoft or two years at IBM, right? An internship at, you know, whatever company. Um, so did you, like, were you, did you find you got like a higher rejection rate or were you, you know, uh, like, like through a phone screen? It's hard to know. So I've only gone through two big interview processes ever, you know, like going out and doing a big search and stuff, but definitely like a lot of startups, I couldn't really get much out of them. Um, and I think one of the challenges there, and we'll probably talk about this later, but it's more of the visa type of thing. Um, I think a lot of startups don't know if they can handle that, like, uh, that process. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I think the real challenge is you just really have to get through those early screening stages, like the recruiter stages. Um, because once you get to the uh, interview stage, people don't really care that much about your background. You know, they'll look at the resume, um, but it's more about how you perform in the interviews. Um, yeah, that's it's getting your foot in the door is, is the biggest part because, you know, if, they, if they're going to throw your resume in like the not enough experience pile without ever talking to you, there's like mm. not a lot you can do about it. But if you get, you know, once you get to a technical phone screen, hmm. or even, even actually a non-technical phone screen, I think at Amazon, I first talked to a recruiter hmm. and I didn't know, I thought it was going to be like a technical phone screen. So I've been like prepping, like cracking yeah. the phone interview, like getting every something ready. And then like when I started the call, I was like dropping technical things. I was like, oh yeah, I'm really excited about this. And then they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa slow down. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about any of that. <laughs> right. I just want to know your general, like, you know, interest in the company. And I mean, but that can also be important, right? Where it's like, if you're like, why do you want to work here? And the answer is like, you offer the highest compensation for the lowest cost of living in the metro area. Like that's, that may be true, but that's not necessarily what employers want to hear. Yeah, definitely. So you should try to find what, what is exciting about what they do and be a little bit enthusiastic about it. Um, so that, you know, yeah, even, even, you know, pre-technical screening, there can be sort of like a culture fit. Mm. although i don't know when you're when you're either starting without experience you're coming from abroad a lot of it is just yeah you know some companies don't feel like they have the bandwidth so they're just gonna like kind of throw away your resume sure. um, which yeah that's one advantage of working for large companies can you talk a little bit about like some interviews you did other than amazon when you were yeah so i did a bunch of interviews in the bay area uh with startups and stuff and 
that was good, but it was always a little bit hard because startups have a different process every time, you know? <laughs> so I remember there was one startup where it was basically like a full on site, but like as in five hours of interviews or something, but a lot of them were non-technical, which was sort of surprising. Um, you know, it was like business people and things like that. Um, then there was another startup where it was like a multi-day process. Like you'd come in multiple times and do different things. And I wasn't really that excited by that. Those, um, are, those are miserable. Like yeah. It, it really. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think you have to be a really, like, you have to, you have to be a really incredible startup to, to get away with that. Yeah. Because it, it's just so gruel, grueling for the candidates. Yeah. And that's why as much as people don't like the whiteboard interview, I, I do kind of think that's the best process for everyone because you know, you can practice for that. It takes up a day of your time, you know, not like these uh, companies that have these homework projects that take a long time and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's, would be uh, my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then also just some of it is just like the way that the market works right now, you know, maybe at some point in the future, like, you know, software developers will have a higher unemployment rate and then companies will have a lot more leverage in terms of like how they do their interview process and like what they expect up front. But like right now in every case where a company has done an onsite with me and then asked for some kind of follow-up, mm-hmm. I had another offer by the time they were like, they were contacting me. They're like, great. It wouldn't be a good time. And I was like, I've already taken another offer. Mm-hmm. This is your process is too slow. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I'm not gonna, like, I'm not going to go back and like, you're just not that special. Yeah, I had a similar situation last time I moved. You know, there was I was in the process with some other companies, but at that point I just didn't want to go any further. Um, but <laughs> if you're going to do this yourself, it is actually best to get multiple offers. That's always the best way to to do things. Oh, um, for sure. You just have to put in the effort, I guess. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it, it it definitely depends on who you're working with for your your comp. Mm. Um, I like yeah. I think I think companies can be flexible with that. Although interestingly, I would have expected large companies to be more flexible about that because they have like a, a you know larger total budget pool. Mm. But the problem is, especially when you're coming in on your first role, um, like I think we were both hired at like L four or like you know mm. level one for like an engineering family, which is sort of their entry level position, mm. um, and like. I wasn't going to negotiate with them. <laughs> you know, it's like, I was like, okay, so this is like a big name company. It's a cool offer. We're working on a cool product. And also you're paying me more than I've ever gotten paid before. Yeah. And you're like, make a counter offer. I'm like, I'm not going to make a counter offer. <laughs> like, yeah. Right? You got to try and fight that though. Like psychologically, you're like, I don't want to make a counter offer. You know, that might ruin everything. Um, but it's perfectly acceptable. Like if you've got a matching offer, that's they expect that. Oh, um, sure. And they also, it's really no skin off. It's not like they're paying it out. If it's a big company, it's not like they're paying it out of their paycheck or anything. No, exactly. Um, yeah, $10,000 is like actually not, you know, it's yeah. it, it doesn't really move the needle in a large entity. And it's, you know, yeah. even the recruiters, they don't care that. Or the hiring committee doesn't care that much. Um, but on your first role, it can be really hard psychologically to be like, yes. <laughs> Okay, I finally got my foot in the door. Okay, yeah, it's a great offer. And yeah, if one way to fight that is yeah, if you have multiple offers and you feel like they're all of like roughly the same quality, then you don't, you know, you let your offers speak for you, right? You don't have to say, well, I want more money. You can say, look, I'm just telling you the facts. The facts are someone else has yeah. made a different offer. Well, that's definitely it. Like 
purely negotiating or just saying, I want more money. That's not really negotiate. Like that's not really going to achieve anything, but you can always, if you have other offers, you can always give them the information that you have other offers. And in fact, that definitely helped me for my first job with Amazon um, because they were able to match my highest Bay area offer, which like at the time, like they weren't doing as much as that in Seattle. So, yeah, that is, that yeah. is delicious. If, if you can get, if you can get someone to match your offer in a different city, yeah. that can be really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and not just for you know, remote jobs, like you can even, although, so yeah, so I guess if you're looking for good initial comp, go to the Bay Area first. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite like, I think it's very hard to know what Bay Area comp changes so quickly and it's very, actually can be very high. So it might be hard to actually, yeah, I don't know. It cuts both ways. <laughs> I guess sure. you kind of want to ladder it, right? Like yeah. you want to have an offer to get a higher offer in the Bay Area and then, yeah. you know. <laughs> ping pong back and forth yeah. until eventually this like entry level, until like yeah. entry level QA tester has been bid up to 500K a year. <laughs> it's like, there's something about them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so when you showed them your offers, like I guess when you first were hired on Amazon, you just said, this is my offer. And they said, we'll match it. Well, they, you just, they say it's on the form, you know, do you, what's your expected compensation? Um, I put a million dollars on Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, people always say not to fill out that number. Um, they, they make it very hard for you not to fill out that number, but it's better to fill out that number and say, this is the matching, you know, it's because I've got an offer. Yeah. This is interesting because I, I didn't have a matching offer mm. and I was like, well, probably give me close to or slightly yeah. above market rate. And so one piece of advice I got was like, don't give them a number. Like, and they asked me on multiple interviews, multiple yeah. people, multiple times. And every time I was like, yeah, I, I want, you know, market rate. I want what the, you know, I want sure. the, what the, the mid range in Glassdoor is. Yeah. And they're like, what is that number? I'm like, well, I mean, it, it d depends on so many factors that I, mm. you know, I mean, it depends on the, the technologies we're using, just like anything. And I, I managed to make it through. <laughs> without ever giving them a number. Although I don't know if that like, helped me or harmed me. Yeah. I don't know. I have some small insight into this, but I think, I don't know. I think you sort of have to give them a number or they'll just put in a number in yeah, there. They may have done that. But definitely like the only negotiating chips you really have is a, um, is a competing offer basically. Um, yeah. That's, you can do a lot of like stagecraft and like, you know, like smoke and mirrors. But yeah, at the end of the day, if you go to their office says, listen, someone else wants to pay me to do this same job for more money. That's yeah. the, like, I would say that's the most persuasive. You just can't argue with it. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like take it or leave it. So, so, so you go, so you're able to do that. And then once you were in AWS, um, what was like the first thing that felt really different? Or, or I guess what felt like the most different your first couple of weeks compared to what you've been doing previously. Yeah, just definitely. So I remember I, I said something like, you know, I think the goal here is to do at AWS in a month what I used to do at a startup in a week. Like as in, because that, that's not saying AWS is slow. It's just that you have to have testing, you know, you have to work with other teams. You have to do proper deployments that, you know, protect the service and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I noticed like, there was sort of a higher level of complexity. Um, but other than that, it was, I don't know, AWS for, for a big uh, software company, it's very, as everyone knows, very customer focused, pretty focused on moving quickly. So 
yeah, but I definitely, it was different working in a team for sure. Um, but I liked it. I, and I wouldn't probably wouldn't go back to not working in a team. Oh. Yeah. There's, there's a real, there's a definite benefit to being on a team, uh, where you're like far and away, not the most experienced mm. because you could just sort of absorb a little piece of information and, or in some cases you learn like how large legacy systems work because yeah. you sort of have this like picture in your head of how it works and you, you're like the naive assumption is that big tech companies are always using the latest and greatest of everything. And that it's like always like super cutting edge and, mm. and you know, and, and there's some of that in there, but also like there's just like workhorse services that like were written 15 years ago and are still creating tons of business value. Mm. And so even though they do things differently than the way we might do them today, like they're too large and complex to replace, you know, all at once. And plus they still make a ton of money. So like, do you have any experiences with that in AWS of kind of like interacting with systems, which were, I guess, older and more complex than maybe like the abstract implementation? Yeah, definitely. I think like, you know, there's some stuff that's been around in AWS quite a long time now. I think AWS has been around like 15 years. So yeah. And I think that can be, you know, obviously some of these big companies can look very smooth and well running on the outside and on the inside, you have the same problems you have at any software company, legacy code, uh, bad documentation, these kind of things. Sure. Um, Yeah. I think everybody has that. The question is, how much of that do you offput onto the customers, right? And so it's like as little as possible is the goal. So even if the interior is kind of nuts, yeah, you don't want you want to have nice encapsulation where it's even if the underlying services are chaotic and have a lot of you know like operational issues, mm. the, it really should be a smooth. You know, the customer shouldn't be able to tell or shouldn't be asked to like know deep things like deep implementation details. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think. I think that's some difference in enterprises like what makes the software more like or what makes the service more mature isn't just that like oh it's written by better engineers and we're you know the best and we spent the most money on it but that they put in the effort and the focus to like be very like think a, think a lot about customer needs mm. and to not just be like well customers will deal with it right yeah i think the other benefit um with big companies is like people actually use the thing like <laughs> you know sometimes if you're working for a smaller company you know or many projects you know people don't actually use the thing you know or it's in early stages and that's a nice thing about yeah that's i guess one of the benefits of the cloud right like because everyone's using this shared service you know a bug that impacts one person will get fixed and benefit everyone else um which i think can be a downside if you see some of the, the smaller cloud providers and stuff if they're not getting the usage um, they're not finding those bugs and fixing them. So some very controversial, extremely controversial takes here. <laughs> Hold on just one second. All right. And we're back. Uh, so one thing about like cloud service providers is, you know, there's really kind of the big three that everybody knows about, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, AWS, Google cloud platform and Azure. Mm-hmm. And then I guess Oracle has a cloud and then there's, um, Alibaba has a cloud. Sure. Um, what are some of the other smaller services? Cause I've, I've, I'm not that adventurous. Like I haven't really gotten deeper into them, but. Well, there's IBM, 
That's the big Oops. one. Uh, forget <laughs> about there? them. Well, so that's a good example. Like, no, yeah, that's, that's yeah. a great, like IBM, huge company, very mm. successful, like making a lot of money, completely dropped off on my radar. Right. Like some, like I, I vaguely knew they had some cloud things, but I couldn't, I couldn't even put them in my top five and they're mm. a very large company. So you can see like how the cloud market is kind of dominated by a couple of larger players. But okay, so sorry, what were you saying about IBM? Well, it's just so uh, yeah, that's it's more of an example of that's when you use these smaller clouds, like you tend to be, you might be in a big fish in a small pond. Um but it's not really sort of ragging on on those ones. It's just more like the other thing is that because AWS tends to build things that customers want, they tend to be used, you know. <laughs> so it's not just about the size of the uh Oh the sure. Thing. Yeah. And and that can be that itself can be a challenge if you're a latecomer to the market is that now all of a sudden you're in a situation where like uh, you can't tell if users really want this thing because you can't get the users to really, like you can't get a significant number of users. And so even if you like do the right thing and listen to your user base, your mm -hmm. user base, there's no guarantee they're representative of the larger market. Yeah. In fact, there's a guarantee that they're not representative of the larger market because the larger market is using one of your competitors. Sure. So that can be like, that can, yeah, that could be a definite issue. And then would you tend to put things like what, like digital ocean and stuff in that category? Or do you see them more as like in the middle? They've always been kind of unique, right? Cause they just go with like keeping things really simple. Um, but I don't know, it's still a valid point. Like I remember reading some time back, you know, they had a multi-day outage of their object storage service. Um, obviously a multi-day outage of like an AWS service would be on the top of Hacker News and be a big deal. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone noticed that DigitalOcean had this outage. So I don't know, that's that's yeah. just an example. It just, it makes things, you have to build things differently. Um, yeah, and in some cases, if you're bootstrapping and you're at a small scale, mm. you know, what's interesting about the smaller cloud service providers is that counterintuitively, sometimes they can compete on price. Sure. Because they, they can go, okay, we're, even though we don't have as much overall capacity, we also are more interested in growth at this point. So we're not, you know, we don't need to post huge profits. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and then in some cases, you know, the services may be less reliable, but what can be nice is to have like a multi-cloud setup where you have your primary cloud and then you have, you want to have a completely separate other cloud uh, in case your primary one goes down. If you have say like, you know, a service that really can't have any downtime. Sure. Um, although, I mean, yeah, there's, within Amazon, I thought that was, there was like, I think it was a common meme a while back was the idea that like, you couldn't change the S3 status from green to red because the asset was hosted on S3 itself. So you weren't able to, to, to indicate a problem with it. Um, and I think that, I'm sure they've taken that criticism to heart and have kind of you know rearranged things so that you you have these fallovers. But do you have any experience working with like a multi-cloud setup, or do you tend to go with like one provider? Yeah, and I've got no experience working with a multi-cloud setup. Um, but just go like a little bit on like yeah that whole managed services trade-off. I think that is there's a really good there's a, an Australian security researcher called Troy Hunt who did a thing on this where he's like the reason I buy managed services is because when something breaks, this is what I do. And it's a picture of him like by the pool with a beer. 
right? Like yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the benefit of those cloud services. Um, now, yes, I guess if you need multi-cloud, if you, you can't go sit by the pool with a beer, if your service is down, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's by centralizing that problem, like where if there's a doubt, an outage, it's going to affect so many people that the company will definitely fix it. That really is going to make life a lot easier for developers for sure. Oh yeah. There's, yeah. there's like a real, there's like a, a very real benefit to that, which is that you don't have a situation where like only a couple of people on earth are, have the responsibility to fix this and only one organization is affected. Sure. And, uh, especially one thing I think for a lot of customers is that if their service isn't vital, they just don't want to look bad. Mm. Right. So it's, it's like if S3 is down, it's like the entire internet isn't working. And sure. so it, if it impacts so many high profile sites that no individual site feels like they are, you know, that they're like reputation or overall, mm. you know, capabilities like are being called into question. Whereas if you're doing everything yourself and you're, you know, like your racks, like your server like fails, then it's just you, right? The rest of the internet is totally unaffected. Yeah. So there's kind of a nice paradox where it's like. Blame as a service or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that's, that's something like that's a service that like a large cloud, you know, a large cloud can give you is that they can make it clear that it's not your fault when things mm. go wrong, <laughs> which is, you know, has a certain, I think people would, wouldn't necessarily want to admit that that's what they're looking for, but I think, you know, there definitely is a value of, you know, the not my problem. Yeah, uh-huh. definitely. Yeah. So then in terms of now in AWS, you were started out in Kumo, which hands, handles support. And then you, uh, let's see, you moved over to what, uh, S3. Yeah. So. Obviously, you always work on confidential stuff at Amazon, but I'll just I'll put the stuff that's on my LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah I worked on S3 on a thing which we eventually shipped called S3 Select. Um, and yeah, that was really interesting working at S3. It's a massive service, um, been around for a long time, very popular with customers. So that was, you know, you don't always work on like really high scale things at these companies because there's so many different teams, but definitely S3 was an example of where, you know, so many people use it. You have to actually think about all those scalability sense and so did you have like almost like a council of elders sort of making sure that no new changes would break the whole service or is it well that's the clever thing i think that's the challenge for all software engineers you need to build your systems so that you can have like a new grad come in and not uh break anything too badly um i saw it this year's reinvent they did a pretty cool presentation talking about the uh like they called it like the culture of durability at s3 which is like every change is validated to make sure like it's assessed on if it could have any impact on the durability of data. Um, that's an example of something, um, sure. like, you know, cause that's obviously the, the worst thing that could possibly happen in S3 is for customer data to be lost. So, right. So you really want to have, especially at the scale of, you know, at AWS, you can't say, sorry, we lost all of your data customers, but don't worry. We fired the intern who was responsible. Yeah, exactly. You know, they will never get there. $6,000 check. And it's just like, that's not an adequate response. You know, similarly, the, you know, you can't say, oh, we'll just be more careful. Right. And it's yeah. like, okay, well, that, that's not actually a strategy, right? Like you need to have safety as like a, a contract in code, even more than, you know, putting in a readme or a code comment or like, yeah. make sure you know what you're doing. And it's like, why don't we have tests and staging 
to make sure we know what we're doing. It's it's kind of one thing that I think in a way that like enterprises spoiled me is the idea that everything you do has a pipeline. Yeah. Nothing just goes from your box directly to production. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies that think they're being like agile or, you know, moving quickly, uh, they sometimes don't have these like environments. I think it would take too long to set up or that it would mm. impact the ability to push changes. But really all it takes is one bad deploy to like, you know, damage your company or like in some cases, if you can't roll back, that can destroy your like, entire companies are destroyed because they didn't have a good rollback procedure. Yeah. So I think that one part of robustness is just like understanding the idea that any changes you make are going to be as you know, reversible as, as humanly possible and also are going to happen, you know, one step at a time. So you get some chance to observe them. Uh, but in terms of like, is data durability in S3, um, were there ever any parts of the system where it was like, how much interest is there versus like, you know, efficiency and reducing redundancies versus safety or those not trade-offs? Uh, safety would never be a trade-off, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which is the right, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Obviously I can't talk about anything internal, but oh, like, sure. that's the nice thing about, you know, it's so big. If that happened, people would know. Um, yeah, and as I said, there was a pretty cool presentation this year at reInvent. I think it would be on YouTube or something where they talked about like how that's just always the number one thing. Um, right. I mean, it's it's I, at, at this point the cloud is a lot like an airline where it's like okay, every other part may you know may have some rough edges, but the plane is not going to crash. Sure. Because a single plane crash, and that's like kind of the end of that airline, right? Yeah. Like, and then, so you actually get a, a virtuous cycle of competition where mm. as everyone's offerings become more and more reliable, you know, any gaps in reliability, any, any problems, any like data loss, all of a sudden, instead of it being, you know, like it just becomes totally unacceptable because mm. everyone else is at this you know, high standard. So that's one, you know, one advantage of the large cloud service providers is that you can be reasonably certain they're not going to lose all of your stuff forever. Yeah. Although, um, and again, this is confidential we'll move on, but like, you know, sometimes things can happen where you lose little things, like you lose like metadata or you have an like, issue with like, you know, duplication and like overwrites. Um, but did you ever experience any of that personally of like figuring out like what a maintenance loop would be like? No, I mean like the systems engineered and like, it's sort of a more of a general topic, but you should try and engineer your system. So like the really bad things, uh, can't happen, which is hard. Um, but you know, like, I guess a general thing would be like anything that's like deleting data or anything that's really writing state. It just needs to be more closely controlled than like say something that's just doing business logic on top of that state. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a case where like a delete is never really a delete sure. because well, so like obviously at S3 scale, a delete is really a delete, you know, <laughs> yeah, at some point because you could imagine yeah. it's been around 15 years if they weren't deleting stuff, I think uh, might have run out of hard drives in the world by now. Oh, sure. But, um, sure. Yeah. I mean, that um, when you call, uh, you know, when you call, like when you call the API or when you use the SDK to call delete, um, yeah. there is some buffer usually. Sure. You know, and again, your use case can differ, but that's one advantage of not of not treating everything as going like, okay, 
we're sure you know exactly what we're doing and we're mm. going to erase everything instantly. Yeah. And um, I saw this year they announced a new feature where you can have an object that just cannot be deleted, even by the root user. Oh, um, that's great. Which is so kind of... It's a truly immutable object. Yeah. And then there's another cool thing they launched called uh, QLDB, which can really... Uh, so that's like an immutable append-only database. That's an example of something that, you know, that kind of structure can help prevent a lot of these problems. Um, obviously, it's not going to work for every application, but that's sort of how, if something's really important, that's how developers should be thinking about it for sure. Yeah, and that, like, I guess so you moved from Amazon to another large mm -hmm. enterprise company. So I guess the same focus on, like, robustness and, like, safety and scale was, you know, it wasn't too much of like it. There were like the cultures are, are similar enough. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. There's that similar. Any large company um, pretty much has to have make those guarantees nowadays. I think the bar's a lot higher than it used to be. Um. <laughs> yeah. Now drag the files into FileZilla. Yeah. And yeah, like you can't, you can't, um, yeah, you can't get away with like, the, oh, well, you know, it's the internet, you know, mm. like, because a lot of cases, I think this is a real difference now is things are, digital first. Yeah. So it's like digital first and only. So on the early days of computer systems, it felt like, okay, well, here's, we've printed out a triplicate mm. and then it's also in our relational database. But if something happens in the relational database, we can always go into like our archives and like pull out the physical printouts. Mm. Uh, whereas now I, I don't know that anybody is doing that. Sure. So, <laughs> yeah. And then also just put it as a disk, you know? Hundred what one gigabyte, hundred megabytes, <laughs> or USB drives? That's what the yeah. kids are using. <laughs> All right, and we're back. Go. Cool. That's. We didn't really need to tell you that. From your perspective, it was a, less than a second. But from our perspective, it could have been days or weeks. But anyway, we're back. Uh, so, yeah one one thing I wanted to uh circle back on before we get too into you know various enterprise cloud services is also to talk a little bit about uh programming languages sure um so when you were in australia you were using like exclusively ruby or a mix of ruby and other languages yeah ruby and of course javascript yeah um, yeah mostly ruby um which yeah i really enjoyed at the time um it's good look ruby's still good yeah <laughs> why are you know i think a lot of people come from that background because mm. so let's see about what like what was the year where you started in australia uh like i guess 2013 late 2012 something like that yeah, yeah so that was ruby ruby on rails like that was yeah that was like mm, there were only a couple of code schools and all of them were teaching ruby yeah like all of them were teaching, well all of them were teaching rails yeah. Um, yeah. So that was that was a really like influential technology. But then, and so you you're still tinkering some with JavaScript. Mm. So then when you came over to Amazon, uh, the Ruby stopped. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> it's like the music stopped. Yeah, the yeah. Ruby stopped. Um, yeah. So like it was uh, obviously Amazon's a Java shop mostly. Um, and what I discovered pretty early on is I used to think I didn't like Java, but actually I didn't like Eclipse. Uh, mm. <laughs> but once I was using Java with IntelliJ, I think Java is great. It's it's hard to beat for like a big, you know, programming in a large language where you got a lot of people working together. 
Uh, you need really robust unit tests, integration tests, that sort of thing. Java's hard to beat for that. Sure. I mean, it definitely scales, yeah. right? Where like that's probably probably most of the largest systems in the world are are written mostly in Java, I would say. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Um, it, or at least, you know, within for like enterprise business needs. Yeah. Um, and then did you find that like, were you familiar with Java from school or was it really like all new syntax or did you feel there was like enough that's like generalizable about it that it wasn't too bad to transition? So I'd done a bit in school, um, but the nice thing, you know, when you work for a big company is existing code. So you can kind of look at that and see, follow the pattern of what people did. Uh, the other thing is at this point, I've done so many different programming languages that I don't know. I think I kind of program the same and then <laughs> see what breaks when I try and compile, you know, <laughs> like see if that works or not. Um, we should pay on the language. Sometimes there can be some big differences, but I don't know. I think of most of the languages I use, I, yeah, you know, I, I think at one point, especially when we worked together, I was using JavaScript and Java both almost every day, which was nice actually. Um, so. Yeah. You can kind of like switch, switch gears and then also, I guess, yeah, you can figure out what works as a common pattern and then what's yeah. different. And so it can give you a nice sense of the strengths and weaknesses of, you know, like different, like different languages and different implementations. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so have you, in terms of other languages you've used at work, like is, is it JavaScript and Java mostly or what else is there? Yeah. So nowadays, sadly, I'm writing a lot of Python. Um, <laughs> oh, shots fired at the Python community. Uh, I mean, Python's all right, but I don't know. I sort of, the thing I don't like about Python is I'm pretty sure you could write just about anything and it will build or, you know, it'll, it won't throw a syntax error. <laughs> it no. might just fail at, at runtime, but I, I don't really like that. That doesn't suit the way I program <laughs> generally, mm. um, but I don't know. Python's definitely cool. There's just too many ways to do things. That's my uh, That's, my thought on it. That would be there. There's like a Pythonista out there who's like screwed. They're like, no, <laughs> in Python, there's one way to do things. Sure, might be but, one true way to do. But things, yeah. I, but of course, you know that's that's never true, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and I think that that can be a, like a general directive that can you know help you along your way mm. in terms of like how you want things to work, but you're never actually going to get there, nor should you try because yeah. the reality is there may be two implementations that are similar, very similar, mm. but have like subtle and, but important differences. And you like, you want to allow for that flexibility. You don't want to do like what we call like yak shaving or whatever, where, you know, you have something that doesn't quite work, but it's the only way to do things. And so you kind of like cram everything into one pattern. Sure. Um, so you're doing Python right now for work. Yeah, Python, C++. Uh, that's probably the two main ones that I do. Um, so C++ is fine. I haven't done that for a while, but it's a pretty easy language to learn, actually. So Yeah. And when you were um, transitioning from Amazon to your employer that's on your LinkedIn account, as mm. you, uh, <laughs> uh, did you, was part of their interview loop, did they sort of bring up that you were going to be working with, Python and C++ or is it really just kind of general programming skills? Yeah, I don't think I've never come across an interviewer that cares what, I certainly never care what language the candidate codes in or even what they've done before, actually. Um, I don't know. I think the expectation is generally that like most people can pick up a language, you know, pretty quickly. Um, I don't know if you found that when you recently changed, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's much um, 
Yeah, certainly I never care what a can what languages a candidate's done or what they code in during the interview. Sure. I mean, as long as it's readable. Um, sure. I've seen some beautiful uh, like uh pure script implementations, and I was like, ooh, I don't is this right? All <laughs> oh, right, yeah. So <laughs> uh, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, no, you're gonna need to you're gonna need to come com- like transpile it to run it against your unit tests. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, in general, as long as there's programming language with like, to like mainstream enough syntax, right, where you can kind of figure out what someone's doing with it, or yeah. at least you can run to somebody who is familiar with it. Yeah, I've never understood those things with all the braces, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so it, in general, though, it's it's really selecting for a generalizable set of skills. Yeah, um, and then. Uh, you mentioned before we started that you've started to do like a little bit more hiring yeah, um, and hiring loops. And, you know, from the, if you can still remember, you know, what it's like to be on the other side of the table, uh, mm. do you feel like doing that hiring has like given you more insight into what to do when you're a candidate or? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I picked up pretty early on is like when you're doing an interview, you think like this guy's like, you know, watching everything I do, any little mistake and I'm done for. In reality, like by the time you get out of the interview, you often have forgotten quite a lot of what's happened in the interview. <laughs> That's why you have to take a lot of notes. But, right. um, you know, you're definitely not looking for small things. And I think in the vast majority of cases, the interviewers sort of, you know, looking for you to succeed. Um, so you should definitely have that mindset when you go into an interview. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they're not going, oh boy, I hope I get to do a bunch more hiring loops instead of work on you know, my assigned tasks. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They, they want, they want to find some, you know, they want to find someone good. Yeah. And you know, I, I think like it's, you can worry too much about like, I don't know, little details. I wouldn't worry so much about in interviews. Um, so, yeah. So that it's, cause it, it's, it's really difficult. I've, I've done a little bit of it. Like I've done a very small amount of a, interviewing at Amazon and a little bit now with my current employer. And one thing that's always difficult for me is the, I guess the unbalanced amount of like interest, right. In the Mm. sense where it's like, okay, when I'm interviewing somebody, I'm like, it's Tuesday, I'm at work. Mm. And for them, it's like a really big deal. It's like, this could be part of your future now and some some candidates it's not a big deal some of them are like oh yeah i've you know done all the right internships i've got the right degrees i've got five other offers you know what can Mm. you do but a lot of candidates are you know getting to the phone screen or even you know getting from the the phone screen to the on-site interview it's like a major accomplishment for them yeah and so you know, their emotional investment in the interview and its impact on their future is like a lot more than it is on you. Mm-hmm. So even if you like can't give the same amount of like attention and interest, which like you kind of can't because it's mm-hmm. like you're, you know, you're, you're focused on a lot of other things and you're also focused on like how good of a fit they are. Whereas mm-hmm. they're focused on just like, give me the offer. Yeah. Um, but it, there's definitely a way to be delicate with people or not delicate, but to be sensitive to like what they've put into the interview. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe people should do an interview every couple of years, like, you know, on the other side and see, 
you know, how they feel. I don't know. It's, it's definitely important to have empathy for people like when they're interviewing because, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a stressful experience. It's a big deal for them. And, uh, and even just in terms of a lot of times there are legal reasons why you really just can't really comment on the interview process mm. uh, in depth if you have to reject a candidate. Mm. But just like letting them know, okay, if we reject you, it's not personal. We don't hate you. You're invited to reapply within reason, you know, within yeah. like a reasonable time frame. But also that we we can't give you, you know, we can't give you like an in-depth like, okay, this is your roadmap to success. Or or these are all the things that you did wrong in minute detail, or this is how, you know, this is the inner workings of a hiring process. So it's like this balance of like empathy, but also limiting the amount of total time you can spend on it. And also limiting what information you can like provide candidates with. Yeah. And that's interesting. So that what you just said is a very US specific thing, like mm. that legal bit. So that's something I found interesting. So in Australia, you know, I did a few graduate program interview loops and stuff like that. And when you get the call afterwards, they give you a lot of feedback. And in fact, even when you're getting the offer, they generally lead with some negative feedback, I think, to make you more excited to, uh, get the offer. Um, so it's very different. You know, I got, you know, you get some pretty blunt feedback and stuff and I think that's better. It's really the uh, litigious culture in the U S that makes that different here. That's um, really interesting. So, like, like that, because yeah, we've, we've kind of taken it as like, this is just a universal truth of yeah, software development. It's, but it's, it's very, because of course it's much nicer if somebody can go, we can't give you the job, but these are all the things you did. Well, these are all the things we think you should work on. Yeah. And you know, yeah. Actual feedback. Mm. One, it's taking that extra, you know, a little bit of extra time to do that. Mm. But then two, it's when people are seeking interview feedback, sometimes people treat it like the candidates are being like annoying or being entitled. Yeah. But like really as engineers, they're doing the right thing, right? Yeah. They're like, okay, I've gotten some data and I want to derive some action items from this. I want to, you know, I want to iterate and improve. Yeah. And when you just give people the, you know, the, the flat rejection, mm. you're, you have data that you have that is useful to them that you're not giving them. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that can upset candidates. Um, yeah, definitely. I think an example for me. So like I was interviewing for like, it was like big four management consulting uh, firm in Australia. And when I got the call back and like said that and got the offer, you know, the feedback was like, you know, you did really well in all the different stages. The like partner didn't feel you were like that passionate about the job. And that was true. <laughs> I wasn't that passionate about going into technology consulting. Um, so sorry, more like management consulting than technology consulting. But um, yeah, so I think that can be, it can be good sometimes, but. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's, that's great. Cause the, uh, I, I see on, you know, like a lot of like, you know, forums and other social media for mm. developers where, people get very angsty about their rejections. Like they're yeah. like, it can really, especially if you go to the interview and you feel like you did really well and then you mm. still get rejected, you know, it can create like a lot of like self doubt. Definitely. Um, or just like resentment or hopelessness or things like that. And especially mm. for someone who's like trying to transition careers, they can feel like that they're not up to snuff and really it could just be like, yeah, it could be like, oh, yeah, you interviewed here, but you know nothing about our core business. And yeah. it seems like you're going to leave in a year. <laughs> just like those are both valid reasons not to hire someone whose mm. technical chops are fine. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So that 
So then in your current role as an interviewer, um, and we, you know, we don't have to dig too deep into it, but, um, are you interviewing for like your own team and your own org, or are you just like a general interviewer? Yeah. So this company does more of a general pool, um, which I think it's good and bad. Um, I was actually going to talk about that before, but like another nice thing about Amazon is that, you know, it, it tends to be the team that's, well, the team's often involved in the hiring process and that can be good. Like we both had a, a pretty good manager who I think was more interested in engineers from different backgrounds. He wasn't necessarily looking for, you know, people who'd got a CS degree from one of the top universities um, and had done an internship. So that can be like a big uh, benefit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, we had a very, like, yeah. we had a very international team and a very international org and like yeah. a lot of backgrounds represented, which I think, you know, really like improved our designs. Yeah. So, but I mean, there's other, there's benefits to having a general interviewing pool because then you have kind of like a standard bar across the, um, across the company. Sure. Right. And that, and that can definitely, you know, whenever I try to explain Amazon to people, mm. a lot of people seem to think of it as like a monolithic entity. They're like, how can they not, or why did they? <laughs> and it's like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Amazon as an entity of hundreds of thousands of employees didn't all do this, right? Yeah. Like this was one interviewer or one hiring manager or mm. one interview loop or one recruiter. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the process is more or less the same across, you know, across teams, across orgs, even across mm. like AWS and retail, but there's definitely a lot of room for, you know, uh, like individual preferences and like an org hiring for a fit, not just for, you know, Amazon in general, but for that org. Mm. Um, although in some cases, what's nice is that an org may say, actually, we don't want, like, we don't want you for what we're doing, mm. but we agree that you meet the general bar for Amazon. So we're actually going to shop you around and see like who else, yeah. you know, who else in like an org, a larger org above us or a sister org, like could have a use for your skills. Mm. So it's not like, you know, it almost, it matters where you apply, but it doesn't necessarily matter mm. like overridingly okay. um but if you do but if you do a general interview loop then like you don't you don't have to deal with it either way right because you're just you're checking for your general bar yeah um and then once you have them you can kind of slot them to wherever they need to go yeah and i think i think in general people shouldn't take rejections too personally and the, you know a lot of random things can happen in an interview loop that kind of mean you don't get an offer or something like that it's sort of I wouldn't like, yeah, try to introspect too deeply if you don't get a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a job I, offer. Yeah. And yeah. And just to, to understand in the American context, sort of why you don't get detailed feedback. Yeah. Um, and also that it's not a judgment of you as a person <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or as a developer, and it's not a judgment of your capabilities. Mm. Um, it's just, this is sort of what happened in that circumstance. Yeah. Um, and I think, do you think that maybe in software development we're a little bit uncomfortable with the degree of like not randomness, but the that it's it, that hiring is is not a pure science yet, right? Like it's an art and a science, and there's also a lot of like variability. Like, I mean, I think we tried to make it a science, though, right? We like have. most industries, an interview process after your first job would be like sitting down and having a chat to the manager and then they'll have a look at your resume and maybe get some references. And that's how you get, you know, the job where even, you know, senior engineers generally go through some sort of whiteboard interview process at, uh, at companies here. And I um, think, yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's like yeah. in most other professions, like 
if somebody's applying to be like a cardiologist at a hospital, yeah. nobody like wheels out a patient <laughs> and is like, all right, let's, uh, let's see you do a little surgery. Yeah. Right. Like, so, or, or yeah, or, you know, like, oh, build us a building, you know, like that doesn't, you know, there may be some like high level system design things or mm. questions about experience or, you know, checking references. Mm. Um, and I mean, I guess in part with, with tech, like, or software for software development, like references are kind of less interesting. Yeah, um, because I, yeah, yeah. I think I, I, from memory, I think I was never even asked to provide any references in my last job search from any company. So <laughs> I think I provided yeah. a couple, but I don't, I don't think they checked any of them. In part yeah. because it's kind of like if your references say that you're great at coding, mm -hmm. and then you just completely, you know, like that can't be validated or verified. Yeah, and the interview loop doesn't really matter, and you know, if you don't have references, but you're doing good in the interview, you're doing mm. good on, you know, technical and non-technical portions. And it's like, okay, well, who, you know, mm. we have, so I guess we're more scientific in the sense that like, we're actually, you know, generating some data and analyzing it. Whereas yeah. a lot of them are just like, yeah, they seem cool. <laughs> but at the same time though, I think about like an interview where it's like, if I were to say run an interview loop 10 times, I mm. don't know that I would get you know, if I was the candidate, I don't know that I would get the job. I would get the offer all 10 times. Yeah. I might get it, you know, eight times out of 10, nine times out of 10, mm. but it's totally possible that one time out of 10, like, you know, I, I get flustered on some kind of question or I forget mm. something or I didn't sleep very well, but I don't know that I would get through an interview loop a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, you know, there's, there's always some variability there. Mm. Um, which is why it's kind of sad when people are like, this is the one company I want to work for. And I'm prepping for this one company. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, <laughs> okay, but what if you just like, you get an interviewer who just like, is like really demanding and specific and wants some like exotic data structure that you're not actually going to use. Mm. And it's like, all right, well, what, you're just gonna be unemployed for six months. Cause you had like one un like unfortunate interview. Like, no, you have to, you know, yeah. Yeah. You, you really, you sh I don't think you should set your heart on like one company or like one specific like niche yeah i think uh, that's true the, <laughs> but in terms of so in terms of interviewing um do you like do you do the phone screens do you do the on-sites or do you do both yeah you do both yeah so. and then do you do you like try to is there like a standard bar for okay this is the bar for phone screen this is the bar for on-site or is it really just two different mediums yeah that's a hard one uh, I don't know. It's sort of like on-site, you generally have lower expectations in an on-site, um, because it's just, there's communication problems. Um, you generally don't have as much time. Oh, wait, you mean in a phone screen? Phone screen. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, whoa, Google really is. Sure. Um, yeah. but yeah, I don't know. It's, it really depends. Um, but I will say personally, I really don't like phone screens. Um, and that's something that really threw me off last, uh, Last time I switched um, switched jobs is like I failed a bunch of phone screens at companies, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> including a company where I'd previously got to an onsite, and so that was very uh, that can really throw you off. No, you it's know? like isn't it isn't it terrible that you've been spending all this time yeah. as an employed software developer? I know, I'm like I've gone backwards. <laughs> you've been you've been wasting all your time learning actual skills that solve real business needs when you yeah. should have been you know uh, doing like uh, canned coding problems. Yeah. Like, how will you ever get a job if you actually do your work at work? No, you have to like, 
And I mean, that is a real issue. And I think like, you know, you have to have some whiteboarding. It does some technical stuff. You have to have Mm. some screening, but I hope that as an industry, we're moving closer to employed software developers, not being penalized. Like, like you're yeah. closer to things that more closely resemble things that you do day to day. Well, I mean, yeah. And to be clear, there is some benefits. Like you would have found the same thing when you've got a company like Amazon, on your resume, a lot of those like recruiter bars kind of disappear, you know, as in like you can very easily get to a phone screen or an onsite. Did you have a similar? I, yeah. I mean, my, yeah. my experience was just out of like a, from like a code school with like, yeah previous real job experience but nothing really nothing mm. really in the domain like kind of in the domain of technology but not like no developer roles yeah um is that yeah it was very hard to even get anyone to look at my yeah. resume or to like look at my projects or to even like acknowledge my existence like i remember yeah. being at some event and there was like someone working uh for a company that remained nameless and they were talking about like how excited they are to hire people from like not with CS degrees and how excited they are about like, and all of this and, and definitely send me your resume and all of this. And, and they mm. were super just like nice. And I was like, Oh, you get it. This is gonna be great. And then like I applied and I CC'd them and I messed them on LinkedIn a couple of times. And, like I just never mm. ever heard back from them again. And then I think I saw them like six months later and they like reintroduced themselves. They're like, Oh, and what nice to meet you. And I was like, and they're like, and, and what do you do now? And then now they heard, you know, after I'd already landed a role, they're like very, they're like, oh yeah, you should come over. And I was like, you, you don't remember any of this, right? This is just, I mean, and again, I, I understand why they can't like, nobody's super special. They can't like follow you the whole way. But yeah, my experience was that it was almost impossible to even get a phone screen. Yeah. And now my experience is like, it's, you know, if I've, as needed, I can get like a phone screen or an onsite or a home. I can at least get an answer no matter what the company mm. is. Yeah. Um, although, I mean, have you, have you found, I don't know, you know, what your job search was like when you were leaving Amazon, but mm. like how, how wide did you cast the net? Like, were you? Uh, reasonably wide. Like, you know, all the big names in Seattle generally, um, you know, some startups, there's some really cool startups now in Seattle, um, big companies. Oh, so, yeah. And then all of them, you know, any, pretty much anyone I applied to it, you know, you would at least get to the phone screen stage. So like, you didn't really get that thing where it sits in some recruiter's inbox for two months or something like that. And then you get a rejection. So. Yeah. yeah. I would have loved to have gotten a rejection. That's for starting <laughs> out. Like, like I had, yeah, I know. That's the thing like, you, they, and then like, sometimes you get, I remember once, actually my friend had this, it was absolutely hilarious. Like, so three years ago, he did one of those like quizzes on like, it's one of those companies that's like an intermediary between you and like you fill out some programming challenge and then they, based on your success in that, they like send applications to a bunch of companies. Oh, yeah, like, like, like uh, I know there's Triple Byte. There's like a couple yeah. of others like that. Yeah, yeah, that's um, pretty uh, good example. Anyway, yeah. so a company <laughs> like that, uh, <laughs> my friend filled out like this thing. Uh, and, you know, three years later, he gets an email from them. Oh, you know, there was a mistake with the, um, with the quiz. Would you like to, <laughs> you did really well. Would you like to apply? <laughs> You know, that's pretty ballsy. Like, <laughs> no, I I sometimes get um, it, it's incredible how long lived these systems are now. Yeah, like I still sometimes get emails that are like, 
would you like, are you interested in this part-time role at a warehouse in Kentucky? That's like yeah. a two hour drive from where you lived five years ago. Yeah. And it's like, wow, you're, you really need <laughs> really to hire people. Let's dust off this resume yeah. from like, you know, 2011. I mean, and I, I wouldn't hire you for a warehouse job. That's oh, <laughs> just, I, start a Marxist revolution within. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> It's, I'm a, a, a apolitical technology professional. <laughs> that's, that's I just the problem is I'm afraid I'd start the Marxist revolution and then be like, yeah, and we should all be replaced by robots. <laughs> Software engineers revolution. This yeah. job sucks. We want to stay home. <laughs> but yeah, the, like it's it's definitely like. One thing I worry about a little bit is because right now the job market for like, especially software engineers with experience, it's so, so good. Yeah. I don't think it's ever been this good. Yeah. And I can guarantee no matter how good you think it is, it's probably better than you think. Like like, (laughs) it's really there, like definitely on the other side of thing, like if a recruiter is speaking to you, they are actually engaged. They really want to get you hired because it's so hard to find candidates. It's so hard to get them through the process. Like, Definitely don't think you're just like a cog in the system once you got to that stage. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it, yeah, like that. That can be the rough part, right? Is is getting your foot in the door is when you're going yeah. from like, you know, from nothing to your first role as a dev. Mm. I've told people this, and some people don't find it reassuring, but it's it's true. Which is that the first job is just so much harder. It's yeah, it's. You know, maybe it's it's maybe you get lucky and you find something or whatever, you know, maybe something falls in your lap. But Mm. like that is the hardest the job search will ever be is when you have, you know, no experience, limited projects, you know, like not really any like useful references. Uh, It's really hard because Mm. you you are in like the check it late, check it last pile. Mm. You know, and I think that's something that people kind of miss is, is they go, okay, but I'm really good and I have these projects and it's cool. And it's like, okay, but we're going to check every single person with two years of experience before we talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> like, like those, those are because those like have already exercised a certain filtering mechanism. Mm. Like at what stage in the process do you get the, like, do you ever get to see like the raw resume feed or do nah. you, no, it's. And I'd hate to see what that looks like, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> I think at larger companies, there's probably quite a lot of like, I don't know, probably blatantly fraudulent oh. resumes that come in. Like, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, that's, people complain about the the FizzBuzz phone screen, but um, yeah, as, as like demeaning, but like, it's shocking how many candidates can't get through it. Mm. Um, or, or, you know, any kind of, it's not clear what their plan is because they can't seem to write code at all. So it's, it's like kind of interesting when someone um, gets to that level or has like three years of experience. And then I guess you kind of feel bad for people who maybe have some form of like, I don't know, like they're anxious about the interview or they have difficulty like with the pressures of live coding. Mm. But I just I've never seen a case where somebody like has a GitHub that looks good and they're making like regular commits mm. and their code looks good. And then in person, they just can't code at all like maybe they're a little bit slower they're a little bit nervous so they make mm. mistakes but it's very very rare that there's someone who is like a hidden gem who would be great but just can't do the interview process sure um 
So, I don't know, do you do you ever have time to like check people's githubs or look at their previous projects or yeah not something? really uh, yeah and i was going to talk about that like I, I did the same thing you know i made a pretty good github and stuff but i think it doesn't i don't know it doesn't really fit in that well with the process it might be better at startups actually um yeah yeah it just depends but yeah it, i think it's good like you should in general be interested in coding if you want to work as a software engineer so <laughs> it helps um and I would say if you're not working, that's the good time. Because when you do work, sometimes you can't be bothered to work on your side projects or, you know, to commit stuff to GitHub and things like that. So, but yeah, it's, I don't know, it's hard. Like, it's not like, I don't think that many companies are hiring based off your GitHub profile. Um, yeah. And that, yeah. and I think that as, um, I know there was this meme, I think, I hope it's dead now, but it was going around. It was about like, oh, if you have over this many points on stack overflow that's an automatic hire and it's like <laughs> no no it yeah. just means that like you answered a really good like you you had like a couple of really good answers in 2013 that have just continued to pay yeah dividends so yeah so that's unfortunate like things like github don't really you know i i'm at a smaller consultancy now so mm. usually if someone posts their github i'll kind of poke around a little bit yeah but yeah, it's also, it doesn't, it's hard to make that fit into the process because it's how are you, how much are you assessing really? Like in some cases I looked at projects and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then I was like, okay, wait, they forked this mm. and they have like two small commits on top of this whole project. So really all I can evaluate from their GitHub is like 10 lines of code that they wrote. Yeah. Um, and even then, I, I don't know, I struggle to just look at code and tell if it's actually, I don't know, like... I don't know if I can just look at code and tell it's actually useful or <laughs> yeah, I don't you, know. yeah, yeah. You want to in in some cases it's like it's for this thing and it's part and it's like okay you're throwing all these words I don't know yeah. and so it's like it's you can kind of go off of like you know like stars or people yeah. watching or even like open issues but yeah it's, it's unfortunate I, I I would hope that we figure out like a better way to integrate people's like you know mm. whatever open source code they have like into the process in some kind of formal way. Yeah, um, I think I did hear about a company that their first stage is something like, you know, show me a piece of code that you're proud of. Like it's, it's like a question on the, you know, link to a piece of code that you're proud of, explain what it does. That's that sort a trick of thing. question. Like this, none of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard when, you know, everything's locked away if you're working at like a big company. But yeah, so that was, that was kind of interesting. Like that's an interesting approach. Um but I think if you still have to, the problem with these processes, you generally still have to do the phone screen. You still have to do the on-site. So like, you know, does it make much difference? <laughs> yeah. Like it, it's really, yeah. it's, it's, unfortunately it's not, it's not necessarily going to help you get your foot in the door. And then there yeah. are some startups that are like, they kind of uh, swing to the other end of the pendulum where they're very, very aggressive about like, okay, you, sh you must have open source commits and you must be doing things. And it's like, yeah. buddy, I'm, I've been working enterprise the last four years. I don't know if you know this, <laughs> but like, I don't have tons of time, but like I've built good products. I can, you know, my yeah. references will agree that I worked on them. You can see them. They're available on the, on mm. the public internet. Hopefully like yeah. some, sometimes you work on, you know, internal line of business apps and it's mm. like, oh, it's really good. It creates business value, but mm. you can never show anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think there's, there's a, a balance there. Definitely. But so in terms of what, mm, do you find that by the time they get to you for say like an onsite, do you feel like everybody, like everybody, you know, is it, is it usually pretty close whether to hire or not hire or does it tend to be? Um, 
Hmm. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good answer to be honest. Like, like if there's not an overall pattern, but I mean, like, there's so not like, a, there's not really an overall pattern. Like, and you know, that's sort of classic psychology thing. Once you've made a decision, you just self-justified in your head. So, you know, nothing ever seems that closer decision in hindsight, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, it's, but it is tricky. It can, and I've seen it, you know, in previous companies, like it can be like really small things that, you know, sway yes or a no value, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then one thing that always, I, I, I assume it's happening at some higher level, but it was mm. like, like, whether you say to, whether you say like, yes, make an offer, or no, mm. let's pass at this time. I would love to see some like follow up on that to be like, okay. And then what happened? You know, it's like, yeah. And then how did the candidates we hire worked out? And and of course this is being done at like a higher level, mm. but at, at least in like, it would be nice to have that in like more granular information, like available to like a developer team yeah. themselves rather than sort of handling it in aggregate. Yeah. Um, because you know, an org can be like, okay, wait a minute. The last 10 candidates we rejected, like all went on to get roles at pretty good comp, you know, like, mm. I don't know how much, how worth it is to track those candidates, but it's probably done. I would guess that. Yeah. I, I'm sure, it. I'm yeah. sure it's being done. And, and maybe there's, again, like legal or privacy concerns about why you don't like, you know, you don't want to like expose this. Although there's, there's nothing preventing you from just like checking their LinkedIn and being like, Oh shit, yeah. they're CEO of Uber now, you know, like, <laughs> or, <laughs> or yeah. something like that. Um, yeah. I don't know if companies do it or not. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of stories about cause LinkedIn does sell all that data, you know, oh, they're not, they certainly do. <laughs> they're not even pretending they don't sell it, you know? Yeah, so <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a fun social network to be like, okay, so it's this tool for recruiters. Yeah. But also it's a social network. <laughs> we promise. Yeah. <laughs> certainly not. You're certainly not just giving yeah. us data that we directly monetize and sell. Which I, I mean, I don't mind because it's also like who is putting things on their LinkedIn profile they didn't want other people. Well, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like of of the social media like networks, I would say LinkedIn was the most upfront of being like. Yeah. This is where you present your like professional qualifications, job experience and skills. Yeah. And uh, yeah, don't post anything else. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> no drunken rants. Like. Yeah, like, yeah. Like don't, you know, don't have like an album of like, you know, here's, here's me, here's a bunch of like, here's, here's me getting drunk on a, on a boat. You know, it's just like, maybe, maybe, maybe those don't need to be. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, they monetize it and it's mostly a tool for recruiters, but when you're looking for a job, mm. that's super convenient. Like yeah. it's my experience when I first started, you know, looking, um, and just sort of getting restless. And like, after a couple of years experience was there's just like a little beat, you know, you go into your like settings and you say like, yes, I'm interested and you get the flood. Yeah. And then you just, <laughs> all of a sudden you're just getting offers, you know, and yeah. from all these different companies. And, and I, and again, like, you know, your mileage may vary by company and by role, mm. but in general, it's nice to, to have less asymmetry there. Like it's, it's nice to have a situation where, okay, you're applying to companies, but mm. recruiters are also contacting you yeah. about opportunities. Although some of them are, are like hilarious. Like I know there's one recruiter that pings me like every other week or something just with some new, new role. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's hilarious. Some of the ones I, I got, I would like, I would just, what I kind of do is I'd let them pile up in my inbox and yeah. like answer them like once or a couple, like every like week yeah. or two weeks. Um, and in one case, like I looked at like, it was like these three different messages that seemed kind of like for the same 
company or whatever. Mm. And then when I went to reply, it was like, oh, where's the picture? All those accounts have been suspended. So it's like some kind of like someone has created some sort of like, I don't know how, but they managed to offend, you know, they managed to like transgress LinkedIn's like anti-spam rules. Even Does though LinkedIn have anti-spam rules? Apparently, <laughs> like those accounts were suspended. Like, yeah. I don't know. What, I don't know how, like the entire purpose of the platform is to spam people like with, yeah. with job opportunities. But yeah. I highly recommend people check out. I think it's called Arrow Weird Recruiter on Twitter. It's an account that. Uh, it mixes together like posts from Arrowid, which I've been told is something to do with illegal drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, no experience in that area, but um, and there's also it mixes that together with recruiter messages. Um, so it's very, it's very funny stuff. Yeah, that sounds really um, good. Like <laughs> those, I can definitely see like yeah. the connection between like the trip report and the way that they describe. Yeah, but, you know, new opportunity. Yeah, yeah new opportunities yeah. in uh, trends yeah. and and you yeah, know, imagine, yeah, like. <laughs> Well, because also sometimes you can tell that, like, honestly, the recruiter doesn't know very much about the role. Yeah. And so they're just like very excited about it. And yeah. it's like, what, what am I going to be doing? They're like, I, you're going to be revolutionizing, you know, the way that we live. Yeah. And it's like, what, okay. With blockchains, like, AIs, IOTs, yeah. and machine learnings. But yep. like, yeah. <laughs> but like, it, okay, but what am I going to be doing? They're like, well, you'll be on the revolutionizing teams <laughs> through technology. And it's like, oh, Okay. Is that like Java or? Yeah. (laughs) I know I had that in a bit in the Bay Area where like, you know, I was working with like a external recruiter and he'd put me through to a company and the company's like, yeah, so I've never actually like heard of this recruiter before. Do you actually know them? (laughs) Like just wanted to check that like, you know, you actually knew that they were giving uh, me your details and stuff like that, which was nice that they checked actually. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's pretty good. Um, And then in, in terms, I mean, recruiter seems like a real hard job, honestly, because like, Yes, you get paid partially on commission. And if you're the problem is that, that I found the same thing with like support engineers mm. is that if you know enough to be like once once you know everything you need to do to be like really good at your job and have full context on it, you could also just become a developer. Yeah, recruiting. I mean, it's pretty like from what I've heard in the external recruiting industry, you know, it's like 20 percent or more of the first year's salary in commission. So. You can probably earn more as a recruiter than you can yeah. as oh, the math is pretty simple, right? You got to sign more than five engineers a year and you're making more money than. Uh, no, I know, but, but now that's the napkin math, right? Where yeah, it's yeah. like, all we have to do is get yeah. five customers, you know, yeah. and it's like, okay, now, but how, you know, yeah. no, I agree. Like, I think it's one of like, that's one advantage of like recruitment and, and, you know, like sales is mm-hmm. that they can command a lot more compensation because it's much easier for them to like, prove the value of their output is yeah. they can go okay i sold i made this deal i sold this many you know this many mm. units i recruited this many people who like came through my funnel and like worked out mm. so i would say like the maximum is higher mm. but i would guess that the average is like lower or, or that you know you mm. especially if you're like a freelance recruiter that seems like the hardest of all of like not you know if you're an in-house yeah. recruiter you know you you have a lot of tooling, you have some assistant, you're, you know, you're part of something, mm. but if you're just purely a, you know, like purely like a, a connection layer, then like I, I could, I don't know. That seems real difficult. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting job. <laughs> it is. But then I wonder, like, I've never met a technical recruiter in my life. Okay. Like I've never met a recruiter who was like, I was like, okay, can you tell me what all of these buzzwords mean? And they're like, mm, 
I have a program that counts them up and gives it an aggregate score, um, which I, I mean, I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter, right? Maybe like the mm. whole thing with marketing is, you know, it's all about your, like, it doesn't seem like it would be a universal set of skills that, right? Like, it seems like it would be helpful to know that like, if someone puts Postgres, they also know SQL. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, software engineers aren't exactly known for their bubbly, like uh, sales forward uh, personalities. So I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there's not too much crossover. There. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, I used to say that uh, if I was talking to a customer, everything had already gone horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. I've, I've I've had to grow beyond that approach yeah. and get better at dealing with you know things like external clients, which is like a nice part of yeah. consulting. That's cool. Uh, um, but Actually, now I think about it, probably if you have the, both those skills, you probably go and found a startup, right? Like that's the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's really, if you can sell and you can code, then uh, you shouldn't really be being a recruiter or an engineer. So uh. Yeah. And that, and that I think becomes the dangers is that, or at least the danger from a company's perspective is that it, you kind of want people to be, you want them to sort of stay within their lane. Like yeah. it's, it's very hard to have like a PM who's writing code. Mm. Uh, I mean, maybe in some cases they can do designs and things like that, but it would be, I think it'd be really hard for them to deal with someone who said, okay, I'm a manager and I'm also a UX designer. And mm. I'm also like, I also have opinions about like, I'm also like a data engineer mm. and also I write code and also I do long-term business. And I'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like mm. you, we don't actually want someone to, well, I don't know, actually, do you find that there are a lot of, or do you find that there's a difference in terms of like the number of like generalists in like different you know, like workplace environments. Mm, not really. No. Uh, maybe at Amazon, I guess you have a few more generalists sometimes because um, teams tend to be smaller. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, the one, yeah, it, it really depends. Managers are pretty technical at Amazon, which is nice for the most part anyway. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I've had like, do you, this is like this, we'll, I think we'll, we'll wrap this up on like a hot button topic yeah. is like, do you, have you do you find that it's easier to work with a technical manager or versus a non-technical manager or does it really like depend on the you know on the individual yeah unfortunately i have nothing interesting to say because i've kind of always had pretty technical managers <laughs> so i haven't really had that uh that contrast let's um, see we'll have to find another hop on yes one. oh uh <laughs> how about um Mm, PMs versus TPMs. Right. Yeah. That's, so I don't quite, well, actually now I kind of understand the difference, but so I think TPMs are meant to coordinate between teams, which is very valuable. It's good if you have someone to do that. Cause that's one of the hardest things of working in like a big company. Is that um, scale? Yeah. yeah. And then have you found, cause I feel like the, the role for project and product manager, you know, it on mm. paper, it makes sense, right? It's like, okay, the product manager is like the owner and stakeholder and voice of the customer for the product and all of yeah. that. And then the project manager is more like, okay, making sure this fits into the overall strategy, making sure mm -hmm. we're like, you know, like making sure like if there's scope creep or things have to be cut, it still does like, it doesn't interfere with the overall mm -hmm. plan. And like, there's more coordination there, but then also I've seen those like really intermingled. Like I don't, a lot of times I'll just say PMs because I'm yeah. not not sure which I'm one. I'm not entirely are. sure which one they are and which set of like a dozen things that they could be doing they're actually doing. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know if it makes sense to have that split or not. Um, I guess it depends on the project. Um, 
you know, I think with agile development, maybe a PM is more important than a project manager. Um, and maybe with more like waterfall style, then maybe a project manager is more valuable. Um, hmm. you know, because that, you know, if in le- unless you have the manager doing it, PMs generally aren't the ones who track, you know, sprints and completion rates and that sort of stuff. So, because that's a question my parents asked me when I was like, oh, it's your manager. I was like, well, no, no, the PM. Yeah. And then they were like, so is the PM your manager? And I was like, well, no, but sometimes mm-hmm. they can, like explaining that, like, I kind of think of it as like a three legged, mm-hmm. um, well, I guess a stool, right? Is like, there's like the technical lead, the manager, and the PM. Um, and that each one of them in their domain has like some limited ability to like override each other. Um, but that they're all supposed to be working towards like the, a common goal. Um, but then some people, like some teams, they go, oh, well, our manager is the technical lead. Yeah. Or they go, we don't have a PM. And so, <laughs> I, you know, I feel like those teams tend to be outliers in one direction or the other. Mm. Like what, I mean, have, have you experienced PM-less development? Uh, not directly, um, but I don't know. I think it's it's always important to have, I think there's a reason those roles still exist. Like they are really important. Um, and when you run into people who think they can do it all, they generally don't do it very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I do think like everyone should be technical in some respect in the, in those kind of teams. So that's one, uh, you know, you shouldn't have managers that aren't technical at all. You shouldn't have PMs that aren't technical at all. You know, there it is folks. <laughs> there it is. Get out in no, MBAs. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll say in fairness, I think it depends on the project. Like within yeah. something like AWS, you know, like something that's like very heavily, you know, technology focused, cloud focused, like, yeah, it really is important to have technical leadership up and down the chain. Yeah. Um, over in um, retail or working with, you know, companies which are, they're not tech companies, but they need to accomplish some technological tasks. Yeah. Um, I've had, you know, very good experiences with both technical and non-technical managers mm. in part because they could answer questions about, you know, how things worked in the business and, you know, overall project goals um, just so well that it was in some cases better than a technical answer mm. because they, they would tell you this and you go, oh, well, if that's the case, then the technological choice becomes really clear. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would say it can definitely... You know, this is the problem with everything technology, right? Is there's no silver bullets, and mm. the answer is almost always it depends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael. Well, thank you for um, talking to me today. Are you promoting anything? Is your team hiring? Do you want anything? Uh, my SoundCloud is. No, no. Yeah. I don't have a SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah, I'm not promoting anything. So, uh, yeah, thanks. This was fun. All right, sure. Yeah, good talking with you.